chapter 3. Timothy chapter 3, this is on page 992 in many ESV Bibles. And here is the word of God. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderous, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, back in the first century when this letter was written by Paul to Timothy there in Ephesus, the world was a pretty unpleasant place to be in many ways, society in which Timothy and the Ephesian churches of that area were living and in which Paul was ministering and working was a society full of every kind of perversion, including sexual perversion of every type. There was lust and and greed and idolatry, which were endemic. And Christians stuck out. Christians stuck out because they didn't participate in all of this. They didn't comply when the government ordered them to perform acts of worship to the idols or to the emperor for the public good. They were seen as unreasonable and as stubborn. And when they were sentenced, as many of them were, they were often sentenced for the crime of hatred of the human race. 
In the Roman Empire, as the, as the persecutions got worse, Christians were seen as people that were no good, that believed in and practiced abominations, that did not submit to what was necessary for public welfare, and who basically were people haters. Hatred of the human race. That's how they were labeled often in the Roman courts. And in this context, Paul, in a few years after writing this letter, he will be beheaded. Timothy ministers on for another 30 years or so after this letter. And after a lifetime of preaching, he will be beaten to death by a street mob in Ephesus after he called on them to repent from their idolatry and to turn to Christ. Well, I could go on, but I think you get the idea. The church in this first century was living in a society of far greater darkness and danger and opposition to the gospel than we live in today. And yet the church flourished. Why? Because the church kept her eyes focused on Christ. Isn't that what we saw in the first chapter? Paul said, Timothy, you've got to keep the main thing the main thing. You can't let yourselves as God's church get embroiled and caught up in all kinds of useless controversies and, or controversies and arguments. You have to fight the good fight. You have to keep the faith. And it's all about Christ. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the gospel. And if you keep focused on that, Timothy, you can't go wrong. And in chapter 2, we saw that when the ministry and life of the church are focused on Christ, then this reflects in public worship. Public worship is prayer and spirit-filled. Public worship is... It includes and involves a powerful impetus to proclaim Christ to the world as the only mediator, as the only hope. And chapter 2 spoke about the, the worship of the congregation, which is the body of Christ, each member restored to their proper office and function. And then we come to chapter 3 this morning, in which the apostle deals with leadership in the body. And so we have in chapter 3, you might even see that in your Bible, qualifications for overseers. But I would prefer to say that this chapter describes the character of leaders in the church, how they ought to be. And, and we can sum it up very simply. They ought to reflect the very character of the Lord Jesus himself. Now, of course, we all do as believers. And those whom God calls to leadership have to be models and examples of that. And so the apostle begins the chapter by saying, the saying is trustworthy. And if you remember, he said something similar in chapter 1, verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. When he uses that phrase, the saying is trustworthy, that word trustworthy has to do with faith, faith 
faithfulness, trust, those are all bound up in the same group of words in Greek. And it's quite possible or even likely that he is quoting a fragment of a kind of catechism that the churches were using. This saying is worthy of holding on to. This saying is worthy of believing. This saying is truth, which the church confesses. And here's a, we had one in chapter 1, and here's another one in chapter 3. Here's a saying that the believers would share with one another. And here's the saying. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Notice how the apostle says you can aspire to an office. What does it mean to aspire to an office? Does it mean to say, when will the church give me honor and preeminence? No, that's not how it works in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's really not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. And it's about our neighbor. And so aspiring to office means that you have a holy desire to serve. And if we have a holy desire to serve, then we don't want to push ourselves forward. But we want to plead with God to grow us in the gospel. We want to dig into the scriptures and into books which help us understand the scriptures. We want to grow in prayer and in a serving spirit and in a spirit of Christ-likeness so that when and if the Holy Spirit calls us to a certain function of the church, whatever that office would be, we're prepared. That's how we aspire, as we cultivate a life of prayer and scripture study, time in the word and a, an attitude and a spirit of delighting to serve the other. So if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, and overseer is connected here, although the Greek word behind it is the same Greek word that's behind the English word episcopal. You know that the Anglican church in North America is called the Episcopal Church, and it that means it's a church ruled by bishops. Episkopos in, uh, or episkopos in, in, in Greek means bishop. And the word literally means one who has oversight, one who has responsibility. And that's one aspect of the office of elder, to have oversight of the congregation. And if someone desires that task, that office, the apostle says he desires a noble task. Now I want to Deal with each one of those words individually. A noble task. Why is it noble? Well, back some years ago, before Paul was imprisoned the first time, he was on his way to Jerusalem. He stopped in Miletus, and he called for the elders from the church at Ephesus. That's, that's where Timothy is. That's where Timothy is ministering when he gets this letter. And the elders that he's working with in this region, some years back, had been called by Paul when he was traveling they went to Miletus, and he told them, this is Acts chapter 20, he told them, listen, you have to take care of yourselves and of the church which God bought with his own blood. You can read that in Acts chapter 20. That's the noble task, to be privileged to serve and to take care of the church which Jesus bought with his blood blood, which he paid the highest price in, in the universe 
to acquire for himself. That's a, that's a noble thing, a glorious privilege, a humbling thing. And yet it is a noble task. And the word task here is simply the word in Greek for work, because it is work. And I see many in the building this morning who have or are serving in office now or have served in office, and they know that it is work. It's hard work, and the wives know that, how much work it is. It's not an easy thing, and yet it is a glorious privilege. And so he continues, because it is a noble work, the men who are called to that office need to have a certain kind of character or a certain type of, uh, yeah, they need to have a certain Christ-likeness in the way in which they live and think. And so they need to be, verse 2, above reproach. And the word here, above reproach, means that you can't, that nothing sticks on this guy. You, you, there's nothing, no accusation can stick. Nothing on this man that you can grab onto and say, ah, here we have a significant error or sin which this man cultivates and embraces. So, not able to be accused. A godly man. doesn't mean to say he's perfect. Obviously, then we would have no office bearers. But a man who lives in and out of the power and the grace of the gospel of the forgiveness of sins in our Lord Jesus Christ. And he has to be a husband of one wife. And the Greek here simply says a one woman man. This isn't, mentioned, this isn't saying that elders have to be married as opposed to widowed or single. We have to understand this in the context of first century Roman Empire in which Paul and Timothy were working. Men were not expected to be one woman men. Men, especially the higher classes, were expected to be profligate, to be given over to all kinds of uh, sexual activities outside of their marriage. And that was seen as absolutely normal and acceptable. It wasn't acceptable for his wife to do that, but it was acceptable for the man. And nobody thought twice about a man having mistresses or having relationships with his slaves, whether male or female. And so Paul says, in the kingdom of God, in the church of God, a man is a real man. A man reflects the character of Christ. Christ is faithful to his bride. And so a man who is holy is a one-woman man. And that means he doesn't carry on with all kinds of sexual perversion with other people. And in modern terms, he doesn't spend all kinds of time looking on the internet at other women he is faithful to his wife. And so every year we have ordination of elders and deacons. So in other years, we will go more into each word here. We don't have time for that this morning. But what I want to do is just summarize the words that the apostle uses here in chapter 3. He's saying that an office bearer, an elder, needs to live a life of Christ-likeness. He needs to live a spirit-filled life. He, 
He should not be someone who is caught up in himself and his family, his needs, but he needs to be one who is hospitable. He has an open heart. He has an open home. He has an open hand to serve. And he needs to be able to teach. Look at the end of verse 2. He needs to be able to teach. What does that mean? Well, it means that he knows the gospel. And he knows how to explain the gospel. And he knows how to instruct people in the gospel, how to instruct people in the way. This is the way. Walk in it. This is the way to follow the Lord Jesus. Now, able to teach doesn't necessarily mean that you can get up in front of hundreds of people and give a a speech or a sermon or a lecture. Each man will have his own gifts in his own way. Could mean simply that you're able to teach one-on-one as you instruct the people who you are pastoring as an elder, and as you meet with them for coffee, and you encourage them in the Word. It's not how many people, but you've got to be able to teach and instruct in the Word. That means you've got to know the Word. You've got to know it well. You've got to know where to find what God says about different things and about different topics. You need to be able to take the word and apply it to different situations that you meet as you, as you talk to people that you're pastoring. And that means that you need, if you aspire to this office, or if you're in this office, you need to be a man of the word. Think of Psalm 1. The difference between a guy that spends his time carousing and living it up and sitting with the scoffers or the man that lives a life rooted in constant study of the Word of God. And the fascinating thing about Psalm 1, if you look at it just very quickly in your Bible, it says, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on His law He meditates day and night. Day and night. This is not a guy that reads three verses after breakfast, five verses after lunch, and ten verses after supper. And that's the extent of his contact with the Word of God. This is a man who day and night is in the Word. He lives it. He breathes it. He memorizes it. He listens to it as he drives to work. He studies it with his family, with his wife. He, he studies it with his brothers and sisters with, and with, with the men in, in men's Bible study. It's one of the main things in his life, the Word of God. He needs it like a a tree needs water. And look at that verse 2 in Psalm 1. On his law, he meditates. It's an interesting word. I'm not preaching on Psalm 1, so I have to control myself here, but it's a beautiful psalm. But, But the word meditate here is connected to what we see often Easterners doing. People in the East, a lot of Muslims do this as they as they're they're doing their daily work, and as they're baking or doing other things, they're reciting over and over and over the Quran in a low murmur. And that's the word used here. It's, it's, the, it's the, the speaking in a low tone, just speaking over and over and over, reciting. So it's interesting that we don't see a lot of Christians doing that nowadays, but that's the word that we have there in Psalm 1. So a, uh, an office bearer, a, an overseer, is a man of the word. He's able to teach, therefore. And, and because he knows the word, and because the word is in his heart, and because it, it, it gives him life, and it gives him 
the energy and the power to, to live a Christ-like life, it transforms every part of his character. It transforms every part of his day. Christ rules his heart by his word and spirit. Christ rules his family. Christ rules his home. Christ rules his life. It's a little bit frightening for us to read things like this as office bearers or as office bearers who are about to be ordained. We think, wow, I, I maybe, maybe I, I shouldn't be an office bearer because who, who is worthy of such things? Who can do this? And brothers and sisters, it's really only by God's mercy and grace that we're able to live according to the qualifications and the the character which God requires, not just of the leaders in the church, but of all of us. Once again, this is, this is how we should all be. And the leaders amongst us ought to be leading, giving an example of this. There ought to be models of that. And so, brother, whether you're in office or you're about to enter into office or whether you're aspiring to office, this is the question you can ask. When... Little boys, look at me. Do they say, wow, look at that man of God. I want to be like him when I grow up. He's a man who reminds me of the Lord Jesus Christ and the way he speaks, the way he treats other people, the way he ordains and orders his life and his family and his affairs, his priorities. He reminds me of Jesus himself, and I want to emulate him. It's a high calling. The calling which we can only uh, come into by the power of the Spirit. And then Paul continues, verse 6, he must not be a recent convert. Now, there, he's writing to Timothy. Timothy's working in a field, the mission field, which is already established. It's been going on for quite a few years. There are established churches. There are established uh, councils of elders and deacons. In a brand-new mission church, you can't avoid having recent converts as office bearers. You've got to start somewhere. But that's okay, because they're all recent converts. So you choose the people that have more gifts of the Spirit and a little bit more advanced, and, and you give them the leadership and the Holy Spirit. When he calls, he equips. But Paul's writing to Timothy, who's in an area where there are already established churches, and in such a situation, if a new believer comes into an established church and right away is catapulted into a position of prominence, he's in danger of his soul. He may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. You think, I just arrived. All these people have been in the gospel for 10, 20 years, and here I am, brand new, and I'm already in charge, showing them how things are done. That's a bad recipe, says the apostle. They can fall into the condemnation of the devil. What is the condemnation of the devil? Well, we know what happened to the devil. The devil did not know his own position, and his sin was pride and arrogance. And he said, I I will be like God. And he did not keep to his place. So Paul's, Paul says, don't put new converts into a dangerous position like that. Wait. In chapter 5, 22, Paul says again to Timothy, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. You've got to give people time. They've got to be ready. And then he explains why in verse 24. Because some sins are evident right away. You can see from a mile off. Well, look at that. The guy's living in that sin. And other sins take time for us to recognize. You've got to get to know people. 
to see that they're in the grip of certain sins which are a little more uh, under the surface. And so Paul instructs here in this chapter, in chapter 5, that the church ought to be slow to ordain brand new people to the faith. And then he says in verse 7, they need to be well thought of by outsiders. Now, notice how much outward lookingness there is in this letter, which is written to the church to instruct the church how to order its affairs. We saw that in chapter 2, where worship is outward focused, thinking about the world and about all men that need to come to Christ and need to hear the gospel. And we see it here again. The apostle doesn't write to a little spiritual colony which just lives in an ingrown kind of fashion its own life in glorious isolation from the world around it. That's not how the Christian church is. The church is not of the world. The church is in the world. And so Paul says he needs to be well thought of by outsiders. Why? What do we care what the outsiders think? The outsiders, the unbelievers, they often slander us and they mock us. And they don't agree with, what, with, our, with, our, with our thoughts and our understanding, our biblical understanding on, on many different areas of life. So why do we care what they think of our leaders? Well, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 gives us a bit of a background to this. 1 Peter 2, 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, because they will, they may see your good deeds. We have to live and act in such a way, we have to choose leadership in such a way that when the world tries to throw accusations and revile the people of God, they need to enter into a crisis because they need to, to be, be feeling pricked in their conscience that they're slandering people who are obviously good and godly and righteous. So Peter says they may speak against you as evildoers, but may they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so this is kind of connected to verse 2 again, that, that the leaders are to be above reproach, that, that no accusation can stick to them. There's nothing to grab onto when you want to slander them or when you want to revile them. They're men of integrity. And so the example would be this. If I'm a mechanic and I have a mechanic shop in the community and the whole city knows that my mechanic shop rips people off and overcharges and does a shoddy job, and then I get elected as office bearer in the church, that's not going to work because I'm not well thought of by outsiders for a good reason. And so people are going to say, wow, that's the church of God. Look at the kind of leaders they elect. I know that guy. He ripped me off. Charged me 500 bucks too much. Said he replaced my or balanced my tires when he didn't balance them. Well, that's not what the church wants to be doing. Uh, electing to office men who are not well thought of by outsiders. And then we move on to the deacons, verse 8. Deacons likewise are to be men of God. They are to be examples of a gospel-transformed life. They need to be examples of Christ-likeness. And, and notice as Paul speaks about the deacons, how often he speaks about faith. Look at verse 9. They must hold the mystery of the faith. Look at verse 13. They serve well. They gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ 
Jesus. The Bible knows nothing of the idea of deacons who collect the money, count the money, and write the checks when people need to pay some bills. That's not what the biblical idea of a deacon is. The biblical understanding of a deacon is that just like the overseers, they need to be men above reproach. There's nothing to accuse them for. Look at verse 9. They hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They're not living in any kinds of sins that they're holding on to and loving. And they're not known for that in the community. They know the faith. They love the faith. They live the faith. Verse 12, they are one woman, or each deacon is a one woman man, just like the elders. They are holy also in their sexuality and in their marriage relationships. They have godly families and households. And so, we see this emphasis on godliness, on Christ-likeness, and on living out the faith and knowing the faith and having confidence in it. And it reminds us of Acts chapter 6 when the first deacons were elected. Look at Acts chapter 6, verse 3 for a moment. If you have your Bible handy, Acts 6, verse 3, the apostles called on the church to elect deacons. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, there it is, of good repute, irreproachable, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And look at verse 5. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Now, when you want to choose some people to count bills and put coins in wrappers, you don't need men who are full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. The children of the congregation can count the coins and put the bills in the right order. And so we see, brothers and sisters, that that's just one tiny aspect of the office of of deacon, that practical aspect of collecting the funds and distributing. This is a a spirit-filled office. This is an office which, which shows, indeed, what the office of overseer teaches in the word. And so we see that the the deacon, the office of deacon, is what James speaks about in James chapter 1, verse 27, when he talks about true religion. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's true religion. Uh, a life of sacrificial love and service, the putting of the gospel into practice. And so elders teach the gospel, and deacons show us how to put the gospel into action. They show us a life of sacrificial love and service. And so the two offices are like two hands. There's word and there's deed. And you want both of them together. Because with These two offices together, we see in the leadership of the church the character of Christ. So we need to have a very high view of the office of deacon. Remember that what the deacons do, their office, originally was included in the office of the apostles. And so they have, they carry on part of the apostolic task and ought to be highly 
esteemed for it. And then look at verse 10. And let them also be tested first. Now, we often read it this way. And let them also be tested first. So, you know, the elders, yeah, they're going to be good guys, going to be godly, Christ-like. Don't, you know. But then, but the deacons, we got to test. But that's not what the Bible's saying. We just saw very clearly in, verses, in verse 6 and verse 7 that the apostle expects the elders to be tested as well. They need to be known. Look at chapter 5. We referred chapter 5, verse 22, that we can't lay on hands too hastily, that we've got we to gotta wait to know if the man is suitable for office. And so in the same way, the deacons, they need to be known. We can't be hasty in electing elders or deacons. And then we come to verse 11. And verse 11 is a bit of a tough one because of language. In English, the word woman is different than the word wife. But those of you who know Portuguese know that a woman is uma mulher and my wife is is minha mulher. It's the same word. Or for those who perhaps speak Dutch, if perchance some of us would understand Dutch, then you can say a vrouw is a woman in general, or you can say my vrouw, that is my wife. So woman and wife, I hope I've got the Dutch right there, is the same word. Same in Greek, and that makes things a little challenging here. Who is the apostle talking about? Is he talking about the, the wives? Because the word here is woman. Is he talking about the wives, the vrouws of the, or the vrouwen of the deacons, or is he speaking about the women who are deacons? Which one is it? Well, a lot has been written about this. A lot of discussion has gone on in the theological literature and in the commentaries. Is it wives of the deacons or is it deaconesses? Well, if we do our study of the scripture like we often do, and we interpret the scripture according to what we're used to, then the answer is very obvious, isn't it? Do we have women deacons? No, therefore, it doesn't say women deacons here because our practice and our experience is what we use to interpret the scripture. But that's not the right way to interpret the scripture. The fact is, is that biblical and faithful Christians and churches and theologians can fall on either side of this question because it really is possible to interpret it either way. That's just a fact. So if it's wives, which would be, seem to make sense because he's speaking about deacons in verse 8, and then he mentions their wives in verse 11, and then in verse 12 he says, well, they're going to be the husband of one wife. So it's all kind of bound up in a paragraph which speaks about the deacons, and so it seems that it would be a reference to the wives here. And that's certainly possible. And in this case, the wives are mentioned because, because of the work of deacons, uh, where the deacons help people with their finances and with their needs, and perhaps the wives come along and help sometimes and minister to the women and children who are in need and cooperate with the husbands somewhat. And so they ought to be dignified and not slanderers. They can't be gossips and they can't say, hey, did you hear that so-and-so got so much from my husband the other day? So that's eminently possible, and it's a faithful interpretation of this scripture. There's another uh, 
interpretation, which is also legitimate and possible and biblical, and that is that this is a reference to women in the church who were called to the office of deaconess. And so we can look at Romans chapter 16, verse 1. So if you look at Romans 16, verse 1, Paul writes this, and this is an ancient attestation. Most, most likely, Phoebe is bringing the letter along with her, and so Paul writes an attestation. He says who she is and recommends her to the church. I commend to you, attestations are not a Canadian reform thing. This is a, an ancient practice of the church. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at St. Crie. Now, St. Crie was just south of Corinth. And we have the translation, the ESV, servant, but the word here is diakonos, exactly the same word as we have in 1 Timothy 3. Not, it's not even a female version of the word, it's just the same word, exactly the same word. In our text, uh, diakonos, deacon, in Romans 16, verse 1, diakonos, deacon, is attributed to Phoebe, who is our sister. And look what he says about her. She has been a patron of many and of myself as well. She's been a great help to many. And that's the office of deacon, to, to be a, a help. So what's going on here, perhaps? Well, if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9, Paul speaks about, let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age. And we don't have time to go into it right now. Chapter 5 is coming up in the, in the next few weeks. But some scholars believe that the early church had an order of widows, women who were single, obviously, because they were widows, and they were older, and they didn't have families to support them, so the church would enroll them and give them a certain stipend, and in return, they would serve the church. That's what deacon means. It means servant. And they would serve the church as women. Now, obviously, if Paul is speaking about these women here in verse 11 the women likewise, then obviously he has not forgotten what he said one chapter before. What did he say one chapter before? He says, in the church, women may not have authority over men and may not teach. He just said that a few verses ago. So if he is speaking about deaconesses here, then this is not an office which comes with teaching authority or authority over men. And so the ancient church would use women deacons to minister specifically and especially to the women and the children. Just a few decades after this letter was written, and I sent this email out to the church uh, last week, we have a letter from a Roman governor in Pontus in Bithynia. His name was Pliny. He wrote to the emperor saying, what do I do about these Christians? Two of the Christians he caught were deaconesses. They were slaves, but they were deaconesses in the church. And this is from about the year 110. So it's about 40 or 50 years after Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. And this is not surprising if this would have been the practice of the early church. If we look at Luke chapter 8, we learn that even the Lord Jesus and the disciples, as they went around Israel, were accompanied by a group of women. And these women ministered to them out of their own resources. These were wealthy women who use their financial resources to support the men in their work, to take care of them, the Lord Jesus and his disciples. And so we'll leave it at that for now. 
but the text here in verse 11 can say their wives, in which case it's the wives of the deacons, or it can be a reference to women deacons in the early church, and both of those are possible. There are Reformed churches, faithful Reformed churches in the world today that have women deacons in this biblical sense. And so we, we move on to chapter 3, verse 14. Paul has just spoken about the character of godly leadership in the church. And now he wraps things up. He says, I hope to come to you soon. I'm writing these things to you so that, you, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That's what it's all about. In a world full of darkness, the church shines with the light of the gospel. In a world full of hate, here is the body of Christ filled with divine love and joy and peace. What does Jesus say about the church? They will know you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. That's what characterizes the church, and that is what marks the Christ-like love. That's what marks leadership in the church. And in a world full of lies, the church holds forth the truth. And the truth is not some abstract concept. The truth is a person, and his name is Jesus he is the, 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 the way and the truth and the life. That's so important for us to remember, as it was also important for Timothy to remember, brothers and sisters. We live in a world which is in constant epistemological crisis, a world which is constantly asking itself, what is truth? Where is the truth? Is there any objective truth? Is there any rock-solid foundation I can build my life on? And our world is confused about that. Because our world says, no, there is no objective truth. Everything is relative. There's my truth and there's your truth. There's my science and there's your science. And don't we see it? With everybody shooting links to different uh, research papers on the internet to argue for their truth or their understanding. And so our world is a, in a strange situation where on the one hand they say there is no truth, and on the other hand, they're doing their best to ram their version of the truth down our throats. And in the midst of all of this chaos and confusion, Paul speaks of the church of the living God as a towering pillar and a buttress. A buttress is a, uh, uh, an architectural feature which holds something up. You think of these big cathedrals, they have these flying buttresses that flow out from the building and hold up the massive walls. And so the church is a, a pillar and a support of the truth. It is holding forth Jesus to a world drowning in lies. And that's what it's all about. That's what worship is about. That's what the gospel is about. That's what church leadership is about. It's all about Jesus. And we can get all worked up about other stuff. We can get all worked up about different truths and different understandings about masks and pandemics and restrictions and, and vaccinations, and we can say, oh, I don't know if I'm in fellowship with you because you're on the wrong side of that issue on this point. And they can tear us apart as the body of Christ when we forget who we are. We are the church of the living God and what holds us together. It's not our politics. It's not our views on medical questions. 
What holds us together is Jesus. Jesus on the throne, Jesus in our hearts, Jesus in our worship, Jesus in our leadership, Jesus in our teaching, Jesus in our acts of service, Jesus in our families and marriages, Jesus in our character, Jesus in our love for one another, Jesus in our love for the world. And so when we elect office bearers, we don't elect men that agree with our politics or with our views on this or that. We don't elect men that will push for our agenda on liturgy or on church order or on whether women can vote or not. We elect men who know Christ and who will lead us in Christ and who will call us to Christ. That's what we have to offer to the world. The person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory. And that's how Paul ends this chapter. He ends it with the confession of the mystery of godliness. Now, mystery in the time in which Paul was writing this letter, they had the mystery religions. And if you became a member, then you, after so many years, you would learn extra secrets and get deeper and deeper into knowing the special secrets of that cult. But for the Christian church, mysteries were things that were open, clear, and revealed by God. Here is the mystery. And then Paul just lays it right out there. It is the gospel. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's summed up there in verse 60. This is the faith we fight the good fight for. This is the faith which drives our prayer and worship. This is the faith which empowers and enables us in our offices as men and women, as elders, as deacons, and as believers. This is the faith we hold out as the only hope to a dying and hopeless world. Jesus Christ, manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Probably an ancient hymn. Kind of like we sing the Apostles' Creed, they would sing this, most likely. It's just a little summary of the person and work of Jesus. Christ, the Emmanuel, God in the flesh. Christ, raised from the dead in power according to the Spirit of holiness, Christ seen by angels. And angels in Greek just means messenger. And we don't have time to go into the details here. Let me just say, if you look at Revelation chapter 2, where the Lord Jesus sends letters to the different churches, look at Revelation 2 verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. It's the minister. It's the messenger of the gospel. And so I take the seen by angels to be the eyewitnesses to the resurrection, the apostles who go out into all the world and proclaim the gospel. It's a a song. And so things are very uh, concise in, in the wording. So Christ proclaimed among the nations. That's the great commission. Christ believed on in the world. That is what we have to hold on to and to offer, brothers and sisters. Christ the glorious Christ the victorious, Christ the sovereign, Christ the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. Now, we've just elected new elders and a new deacon, and we did not elect them to be men who are here to stop 
people from rocking the boat. We did not elect them or the other guys to keep things comfortably the same the way we're always used to. We elected men to lead us forward in Christ and to Christ, to call us to radical change, to stop clinging to sin and to embrace Jesus, to call us to a life of transformation from glory to glory according to the image of Jesus, to lead us as we call the world to repent and to turn and to believe with the heart and to bow the knee and to confess with the lips that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.